Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. This morning we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 2, but rather than reading the entire chapter, uh, which would take quite a bit of time, uh, because it's 48 verses long, I'm actually going to just read four verses to anchor us, Daniel 2, 19 to 23, um, and we're going to look at those verses, uh, read them as kind of an anchor point, and then I'm going to be quoting the text as we go along. So I can't tell you this week that the text is in your booklet because as it's going to be throughout most of the rest of the series of Daniel, because we're covering such long, uh, at least a chapter at a time, it's a good reminder, make sure you bring your Bible or uh, you should have one on your uh, electronic Bible that also serves as a phone for you. I hope you view these devices that way. Uh, Have a Bible on them ready and accessible. And it'll also be up here on the screen. So Daniel chapter 2, today we're going to be looking at the God of wisdom and power. Uh, The verses that I'm going to read right now will be up on the screen. Hear now the word of the almighty and all-wise God. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you. O God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Years ago, I remember going to the theater and watching the movie Prince of Egypt. And it's a a retelling that Steven Spielberg was behind of kind of the Ten Commandments movie. A lot of differences between it and the old Charlton Heston movie, but there was a great scene in the middle of it when Moses has come in and he is commanding Pharaoh that God says, let the people go. And Pharaoh, the great king of the day, doesn't want to recognize this. And Moses throws his staff down and the staff turns into a serpent. You remember this is actually in the scripture. Pharaoh steps back and two characters, the two chief magicians, of Pharaoh, who are voiced by Steve Martin and Martin Short, which makes it all the funnier, they step forward and they start doing all this funky dancing around, and the song is called, You're Playing with the Big Boys Now. Moses, you thought you were something, but now you're out here and you're playing with the big boys. And so, yeah, you turned your staff into a snake, Well, we're going to turn ours into snakes. Of course, as they're dancing around and doing this, you see in shadow as Moses' serpent eats their serpents, 
and they have to undercover the, the discovery that actually they're playing with the big boys now is what's really gone on. I've never forgotten the scene. It was, it was done brilliantly. And I, I thought about that this week because this story in Daniel chapter 2 is a great reminder. It's very similar to what went on with Joseph and Pharaoh and then later what happened with Moses and Pharaoh. There is a contest that is going on here where the great king and all of his entourage that surrounds him are in a face-off with God and God's prophet and leader, whether it was Joseph or Moses or now Daniel. And in this chapter today, what we're really uncovering is not so much the actual vision of Nebuchadnezzar. We are going to talk about that and we'll see a little bit about that but we're really going to come back to it in chapter 7. What's really being dealt with here in chapter 2 is where are wisdom and power found? You remember Daniel, when we left him, had been going through years of training to undercover from, from the Babylonians where wisdom was found. And he's serving in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful monarch of his day. Well, this chapter is saying, where's real wisdom and where's real power Found. So we're going to look at this. This chapter breaks down into to really kind of four sections. The last one's very small, three main acts or scenes, if you will. And in the first one, we discover human wisdom and power, which is verses 1 to 13. And if you notice in verses 1 to 3, it's early in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We're told it's in the second year of his reign, which the way the Babylonians counted Usually the Hebrews would have said this was his third year probably. He's probably right at the end of Daniel's training or just after he has completed his training. And Nebuchadnezzar's early in his dream. And one night he's troubled, we're told. Uh, he's having uh, trouble and he, he can't sleep and he has dreams. And so he does what ancient Near Eastern kings did. He summons all of his wise men, his counselors. And the, the Hebrew text here uses four different words to describe this group. Uh, the, the words are kind of varied, but it's basically the counselors. It's the, it's the cabinet. It's the people that surround the king to help him. And one of the things that they did, this sounds funny, you know, we've got our president, and our president has, you know, a secretary of education and secretary of defense. Nebuchadnezzar had people who interpreted dreams. That was one of their tasks. And this sounds strange, but it was very common back then. This is, we see this all the way back with Joseph. Uh, you can see it at other times with Pharaoh. And we know from it outside of the scripture that this was common with the kings. When the king has a dream, he has people around him whose responsibility it is to interpret the dream. This continued actually all the way into the time of the New Testament. When Caesar would go off in battle, they had people whose responsibility was, as funny as it sounds, to kill chickens and... Uh, examine the livers and determine what's likely to happen in the battle. And that's more or less what's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar. So he calls him in and he says, I've had a dream. It troubles me. I want to know what, the, what it means. So I've called you all in here. And at this point, nothing strange. In the, the second kind of scene here in Act 1, we run into a problem because we're told the astrologers answer the king in Aramaic. And it's kind of interesting because at basically what the NIV here has translated as Aramaic, the book actually shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic, right there in the middle of the sentence. It shifts over to a different language 
the letters look the same, but it is a different language. And it'll stay that way all the way through the end of chapter 7. And then it'll go back to Hebrew. Not exactly sure why. Scholars like to argue over this. But, but here, they suddenly address the king in Aramaic, which is likely what they would have spoken because that was the international language. By this point, when Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar talked, they probably talked in Aramaic. Because Daniel normally spoke Hebrew, which Nebuchadnezzar didn't know. Nebuchadnezzar normally speaks Akkadian, which is a very small dialect, so they speak in the language that everybody knows, which is Aramaic. And these guys, they speak to the king, and they say, hey, no problem, we understand this, you tell us the dream, we'll interpret it. And they actually have manuals and manuals of books with past kings and past dreams and what happened, so they say, we can figure all these things out. Based on all of that, we can tell you what the dream is likely to mean. But then the plot thickens, because Nebuchadnezzar says, no, no, no. You're going to tell me what I dreamed, then you're going to tell me what I dreamed means. And the wise men are kind of struck at this. This is a, this is a huge unexpected twist. Everything's been normal up to this. But it's also a problem because they've got manuals that will tell them how to interpret a dream, but they don't know what the dream is. And Nebuchadnezzar tells me, you're going to tell me the dream, and if you don't, I realize you're trying to lie to me. You're all trying to trick me. So you're going to tell me the dream, and then you're going to tell me what the dream means. Now, the wise men panic. And who can blame them, right? I mean, you got a guy who's got the power of life and death in front of you, and he's telling them, I fell asleep, dreamed something, you tell me what I dreamed, or else. This is kind of a problem. So the wise men kind of panic, and they say, oh, yeah, you know, look, just tell us the dream, and we'll, we'll explain it to you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, no, you're going to tell me the dream, or else you're going to die. And they then respond to the dream and they, or they, they tell him, you know, you've you got to tell us. And, and he's explaining, no, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to do this or it's big trouble. And the astrologers then, it's kind of interesting, down in verses 10 to 13, notice what they do. They, they're flabbergasted at this point. They lose their cool. And they say, look, we know you're a great king, but nobody's ever asked for anything like this. Here's how this works. You have a dream. You tell us the dream. We go consult our books, and then we explain the dream to you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you're going to do this. And then notice, this is an important verse, and, I, and, it, and part of what I'm doing here is teaching us how to read the Bible. Here's what should happen when you read verse 11. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Oh, Christian, what do you hear when you hear that verse? Really? My God lives among men. Jesus Christ came and took flesh, and he lived among men. Maybe your gods don't live among men. Maybe your gods don't communicate with us, but our God does. And our God does live among men. But these guys say, this is impossible. And so the king then gets really angry. Because this was not the smartest way to respond to the king. I mean, 
you don't talk back to these guys. You just say yes, sir, and do whatever they're wanting done. And Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, gets furious, and he says, I want all the wise men executed, not just the group standing in front of me. If you're a wise man in Babylon, I want you dead. Who does that sound unreasonable to? And that sounds crazy, right? But the thing is, I mean, it is crazy, um, but this kind of stuff happened a lot. This is the way these guys act. We have a story where Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that the, the Persian king, uh, Darius, not the one that's in Daniel chapter 6, but a later one, had to say he found out that some of his wise men were kind of plotting against him, so he had the whole group of them wiped out. They, they were referred to as the Magi, like in Matthew. All of them wiped out, killed down to a man. Now, we need to understand, Nebuchadnezzar is probably feeling a little bit vulnerable here. That's why he's acting this way. He's a young man, and he's early in his reign. And if you study ancient history, when you're going through and you've been established in your reign for a long time, everybody's figured out you're in charge, and they just stay with the program until a new king comes in, and that's when everybody wants to revolt. They want to find out what this king is made of. So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't sit very well on the throne yet. He's won a lot of battles, but he's at a vulnerable time. Furthermore, there's one of two questions. Either Nebuchadnezzar doesn't remember his dream, and that's why he's asking him to give it to him, or he does. Now, if he doesn't remember the dream, you might say, who cares? I mean, we've all had dreams we don't remember, right? But in the ancient world, if you're a king and you have a dream and you don't remember it, that's a bad sign. You, you've been born under a bad sign. Because God is telling you, I'm warning you, and I'm so angry with you, I won't even let you know the warning. I've removed the dream from you. So if Nebuchadnezzar's in that, he's going to be very upset, and these guys saying they can't do it is going to just make him angrier. On the other hand, if he does remember the dream, and that's also possible, it's a sign that what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, I don't trust you guys. I think you're telling me things, but I think you might be plotting and conspiring against me. And again, we know exactly, Herodotus says that's exactly, Darius caught the same group of guys, I mean, not literally the same people, but the same type of councils around him, he caught them involved early in his reign in a plot against him. So kings were always worried about this. But here's the upshot of it all. Nebuchadnezzar is sending out somebody to slaughter all the wise men, which means Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are all now under a death sentence. This is the worst possible news. They are in deep trouble. This is worse than the exile. It seemed like the story had started at the lowest point. Daniel 2 is telling us, oh no, it can get a lot worse. Now Daniel and his companions are under a death sentence for something they didn't have anything to do with. They're sleeping back in their rooms at this point probably. But that's what's going to happen. How are we going to respond? Well, it moves to Act 2, which is a revelation of God's wisdom and power. So we read in verse 14, Arioch, whose name actually means chief slaughterer, that's his name. Not a good name. When you name your kid, parents, don't, don't pick that one. Um, 
He's the commander of the king's guard. He goes out, and he's going to put the wise men to death. So Daniel and his companions hear a knock on the door. They open the door, and Ariok says, hey, I've gotten along with you before, but king says you've got to die. Now, contrast how the other wise men, they all freaked out. Daniel, we're told, speaks calmly and says, why, why did the king give this order? What's going on? And we're specifically told that he's then given some time. But notice in verse 14, it tells us Daniel speaks with wisdom and tact. Two things that the other wise men had not displayed, either wisdom, which is unusual for wise men, and they also showed no tact. Now, Daniel may realize he's in the place of Joseph. He may realize that, you know, the exile was likened many times to Israel being in Egypt, and twice before we've had where there was a contest between Yahweh and his representative and the gods of Egypt and their representatives. It happened with Joseph, and Joseph was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Maybe I'm in the place of Joseph. Maybe that's part of why Daniel can respond so calmly. It may also be that he realizes from Isaiah chapter 40 to, verse, to chapter 55, God is speaking prophetically to the exiles and says, when you're in Babylon, their gods are going to be all around you, but Yahweh gives a taunt to the gods of Babylon. And he says, oh, you all are the gods, huh? Can you tell the future? Can you reveal mysteries and secrets? Because I can. And he even names and says, look, Babylon, you're going to rule for a while, and then I'm going to raise up a guy named Cyrus from the Persians, and he's going to come in and cut you down. So Daniel may realize, I'm in the exile. God is taunting the gods of Babylon. But in any event, Daniel responds quite calmly, which I have to admit, especially given the fact that he's a teenager, I would have probably been freaking out. I would have probably been stomping around saying, this is not fair. How can he do this? I had nothing to do with this. This isn't right for him. Doesn't he realize that this is not the way this works? But Daniel doesn't. We're specifically told he responds with wisdom and tact. Now, I'm not going to focus a lot this morning on Daniel because the focus is not on Daniel, it's on God. But I will say a couple of things for us to note. Please note, wisdom and tact are essential if you're in exile. You can get away with being foolish and tactless when it's your country. But, hear me, who in here is in exile? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in exile. And if you're in exile, you better have wisdom and you better have tact or else you are going to find yourself in big trouble. So notice it stresses to us that Daniel has this. And in fact, we're going to see later Daniel acts with humility throughout the whole thing. He doesn't take any credit for himself. He's always deflecting it. He also acts with compassion. Amazingly enough, when Daniel is able to come through and he's going to be saved, the first thing out of his mouth is, go tell nobody else needs to be killed. Don't kill all these pagan astrologers. Don't have them killed. That's compassion. Because Daniel throughout is being portrayed as a man of character. Because if you're in exile, you better be concerned with character. If you're in exile, it's not enough that your character is the same as the people around you. 
Your character has to line up with the character of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I will say, and, and then we'll move on, this is especially convicting for me because the resources I have under the new covenant are far greater than anything Daniel had. There's no excuse. Is he under the old covenant, not fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not baptized in the Holy Spirit, not having the word of God written on his heart, not given a new heart. If he can respond with this kind of character, I have no excuse to say, oh, yeah, but that's too hard, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. When you were sent into exile, and we all were, you were given the resources by the Spirit of God to walk in character. And that means... When the culture around us looks like a bunch of chimpanzees flinging feces at one another, which is exactly what our culture looks like, we can't say, well, I can get down and fling it like they can. That's not the ways of Christ. It's just simply not. And it's not the way of exiles. They're into that lesson. So, Notice here what immediately happens. We're told is Daniel responds with prayer. He returns to his house. He gets together the three friends. And we're told in verse 18, he urges them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery. Now, this is another thing that's revealed regarding Daniel. He immediately gathers his friends to pray. Daniel is seen as a man of constant prayer throughout the book. Not only is he praying here, we all know the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. Why is Daniel in the lion's den? Because he prayed, and how often did he pray, we were told? Several times a day he got down and he prayed. This was, and the guys who set the whole thing up knew Daniel did this. Daniel was a constant man of prayer. But not only Daniel chapter 6, in Daniel chapter 9... Daniel is reading the scripture. He understands the exile is about to end. It's the end of the 70 years, according to the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And he doesn't just say, hey, this is awesome. I'm going and packing my bags. He turns himself to prayer. And Daniel chapter 9 is an amazing prayer of Daniel because we're shown that he is a man of prayer. In chapter 10, Daniel's been given these visions. And at one point, he's been fasting for three weeks and all this is going on. And the archangel Michael shows up, and we'll look at all this later. And Michael says, look, when you started this 21 days ago, I was sent. There's been this spiritual warfare going on. All of it is revealed Daniel is a man of prayer. Not once in a while, not when the crisis happens, but constantly. Prayer is the lifeblood for God's exile people. It must be our first action not our last resort after the other things we tried failed. Now, be honest. See, it's humbling. I am not sure, especially as a teenager, in fact, I'm relatively certain, and anybody who knew me as a teenager could testify, I would not have responded with wisdom intact. I would not have displayed humility, and my first response would not be prayer. It would have probably been something more physical warfare. But that's not how Daniel responds. Because this is an example for us. See, this is where exiles turn. Because if you're in exile, you realize your resource is Almighty God. And you also realize that if you have that, you don't need anything else. It's okay. So Daniel does this. And then we're told that God answers. And then Daniel immediately turns back to prayer again. 
We don't even know how. We just are told during the night the mysteries revealed to Daniel. We don't know if he had a dream, if he had a vision, if there was an angelic visitation. We're not told. But he does what the astrologer said could not happen. God comes and he reveals the mystery to the wise man Daniel. The astrologers have said this does not happen. It categorically cannot happen, but it happens for Daniel. But notice, Daniel doesn't rush off. Now remember, there's a death sentence hanging over your head. He doesn't rush off. He also doesn't go out and sign a book deal. He gets back on his knees, and he gives thanks to God. And the prayer is a beautiful expression of biblical prayer. It's what we actually read at the beginning of the teaching this morning. And it shows how steep Daniel is in the word of God and prayer. If you look at it, there's elements out of the Psalms, out of the book of Job, which is part of the wisdom literature. And it shows that Daniel was prepared long before the crisis arose. And I'm not going to take much time. And after hours this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about Daniel's walk with God and ours. Because, friend, if you and I decide better learn how to pray when we're getting lowered into the lion's den, it's a wee bit late. You're supposed to be walking with God now. Good time or bad. And exiles realize that. And Daniel responds with thanksgiving because, see, if you're in exile, I know, number one, that my only resource is God, and I know, number two, I don't deserve to have God intervene and do this for me. Therefore, if God has intervened and God has exercised and saved me, the only possible response is thanksgiving and praise. And that's exactly what Daniel responds and prays. And notice the heart of his prayer is regarding God's wisdom and power. Now, on the screen I put up here, in yellow, all the phrases in the prayer about wisdom, and in orange, all the phrases about power. And if you notice, that's pretty much the entire prayer, other than praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Pretty much the rest of the prayer is wisdom and power. Notice wisdom there, uh, that God is wisdom and power are God. So wisdom is there. Uh, in verse 21, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And then in verse 23, you've given me wisdom. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. So notice all that is about the wisdom of God. What Nebuchadnezzar dreamed is hidden from everybody, but not from God. What is dark is light before God. He sees and knows it all, and he's able to give wisdom. Secondly, there's power. Power is God's, and so Daniel says in verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings, and he deposes him. Who's in charge? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is. We're going to see in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 again, he thinks he is, but Daniel's saying no. You're just, you're just a pawn. God just moves you wherever he wants. You happen to be the most powerful pawn right now, but it's not like you did something. God's the one that does that. And then notice again in verse 23, you've given me wisdom and power because Daniel now has the ability to do what the other wise men said could not be done. But he knows it came from God. 
So God controls the events of the earth. He knows what's going on now, what's going to happen in the future. And because he's the God of wisdom and power, he's able to reveal the dream to Daniel. Now Daniel then goes, and the rest of the chapter is Daniel uncovering the dream. And it's the dream and it's meeting. It's kind of Acts uh, 3 in our little play here this morning. And I'm not going to go into all the meaning of the dream in great detail, because we're going to come back and we're going to see that chapter 7, there's a, what's known as a chiasm, I've talked about this before, in the book of Daniel. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 match up, they're both visions of the future. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 match up, it's the young men in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. It's the people of God in trouble uh, as exiles. And then chapter 4 and chapter 5 are God humbling pagan kings. Nebuchadnezzar's turned to an animal, and Belteshazzar gets the handwriting on the wall, and his kingdom falls. There's a chiasm going on. And so in chapter 7, we're going to get the same information, and we'll come back. But Daniel gives us the dream here. And notice, I'm going to put up a little picture of a statue here. And basically, there's four parts to this statue. There's a head of gold. There's chest and arms of silver. There are belly and thighs of bronze because we're modern evangelicals, they put it, you know, not the belly and thighs, but actually his uh, little skirt thing. And legs of iron and feet of iron and clay mix. Okay, so there's four parts. And then he mentions that there's a stone that is cut out of a mountain without human hands. And it's hurled, and it strikes the statue at its feet. And the statue crumbles and becomes like dust that the wind blows away. And that's the dream that the king has had. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you dream. I would have loved to have seen Nebuchadnezzar's face, as Daniel told him. I mean, I would have loved to have seen that moment. And then Daniel says, and now I'm going to give you the interpretation of the dream. And again, we'll go into it much more in detail in chapter 7. But he tells us this. If you look at the, the next screen that's going to come up here, he describes what the parts are. First, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. That's you. And that's the one part that he really interprets here. He says, you are the head of gold. And he specifically says, you've been given great authority by God. You, you've got authority over all the humans on earth, and you've got authority over the beasts of the field. Remember that, because Nebuchadnezzar is going to find out later, and if you want to act like a beast, I can make you like a beast. But you've been given this authority. I also would just point out briefly that if you remember when human beings were created in the image of God, what were we specifically given authority over? All the beasts of the field. So Nebuchadnezzar, you've been given this authority just like God gave to humanity. You've been given this. It's yours. After you, there's going to be a kingdom that's going to arise. And the other three parts we know are other kingdoms. And we know when we compare it with chapter 7 and we look at history, that the Medo-Persian Empire is the empire of silver, which is going to conquer Babylon. And then the bronze one is Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, which is going to conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the iron is Rome, which is going to come in and conquer Alexander's former empires. Alexander's is split into four parts. And it's not that we're trying to come up with everything, because Alexander's is, you know, it becomes two legs, but Alexander's empire was split into four. Why are there two legs? 
because human beings have two legs. That's why. Why are there ten toes? Because human beings have ten toes. Don't, don't try and read into every little thing or you'll get yourself in trouble. But notice here, they've got these, and it's basically the next 600 years of what's going to happen. But here's the most important thing. It's none of those four. The most important thing Daniel tells us is the kingdom of God. It's the rock that is cut out without human, without human hands and it strikes him. Notice in verse 44 and 45, I'll put this up there. In the time of those kings, which is the time of the Roman Empire, God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and it will never be left to another people. Gold's going to turn to silver, it's going to turn to bronze, it's going to turn to iron. Because Babylon's going to turn to Medo-Persia, it's going to turn to Greece, it's going to turn to Rome. But then there's going to come a kingdom, and it's not going to anybody else. This kingdom will be eternal. It will not be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. And we know what Nebuchadnezzar did the next minute. What did he do? He fell on his face in front of Daniel. I mean, he was blown away that Daniel had done this and interpreted this dream. But this is the key and the central thing. During the time of Rome, God is going to set up his kingdom. But this kingdom is going to be different than all the other kingdoms. It's not part of the statue. It doesn't come out of the statue. In fact, it's not fashioned. The, other, the statue is fashioned by human hands. The rock is not. It is cut out of a mountain. It is hurled at the statue, and it crushes the statue. And we're told... In verse 35, if you go back and look, we're told that when the right rock strikes, it starts to grow, and it grows, and it grows until it fills the whole world, okay? It's not just a big statue. It fills the entire earth, and then we're told it will endure forever, but the other kingdoms, Daniel's words are, these other things, they are blown away like chaff. Does that phrase remind anybody in this congregation of any other scripture? Remember Psalm 1? Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. See, when Daniel saw this, he's like, oh, I've seen this before. I know that this is Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. God is going to set up his king. God is going to set up his kingdom, and you will either kiss the sun or you will be like chaff that will be blown away like the wind. And the key to life, you may think you're powerful if you're Nebuchadnezzar or if you're Cyrus or if you're Alexander or if you are Caesar, but real power is found in embracing the Son of God. It is in kissing the sun. And those who refuse, that whole statue will crumble It'll be nothing but dust, chaff, that the wind blows away. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds, you know, and, and Daniel is promoted. He's blown away that God has revealed this. Now, I want to take time and step back and say for us, what does this mean to us? How do we apply the word? There's two basic questions when we come to the Lord's table, or actually a question and then a statement. Number one, do I see that God is the God of wisdom and power? 
See, that's the focus of what's going on here. If you are Daniel, and if you are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and you are looking, and you are rubbing shoulders with Nebuchadnezzar, it seems like this is the kingdom. This is power. We are around it every day. When Nebuchadnezzar speaks, everybody else does what's done. And we've been reading all of their wisdom, and everything here seems so wise and so full of power. But see, Daniel's being shown their wisdom failed. When Nebuchadnezzar called them in, they not only couldn't do it, they said it was not possible. But Daniel did it. And they have been told that this is a kingdom and Babylon, when kingdoms are in their arrogance and their power, they think they will last forever. But you know what has happened to every human kingdom that's ever arisen? They're all dust that the wind blows away. All of them. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, but God's kingdom rules forever. Put yourself in Daniel's place. How would that feel? Man, that would be encouraging. It's a reminder. I seem like an exile from a little, what's now a backwater province. I have no power, no authority. I'm stuck here doing what I'm told. But this is a reminder. No, that person is not in charge. I am in charge. Your God is in charge. And he sets up and he brings down. And Babylon seems like it will last forever, but it will not. It will be replaced by Medo-Persia, which will seem like it will last forever, but it will not. It will be replaced by Greece, which seems like it will last forever. And in a day, Alexander the Great is dead when he's 33. And so it goes on and on and on. So do I see that God is wise? And the kingdoms of this world, and let me be blunt, including America, are full of foolishness. Friends, that's the way it is. Our age thinks we're wiser than God himself. You are told every day, and so am I, we know what wisdom is. Now you take your Bible and you see where it's speaking truth and where it's full of error. That is utter stupidity. That is completely backwards. You do not measure the standard of wisdom by the falling, flailing wisdom of our age. But that's exactly what we're being told to do. Judge his wisdom by our own. When I think of that, I think in Romans chapter 1 where Paul looks and he, and he, he kind of riffs a little bit on what's going to go on here with Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, you know, human beings were put over animals, but when we start making our own gods, what do we make them look like? Animals. And then we get down and we bow down in front of them. I mean, how stupid. We're in charge of the actual animal. We make just an image of the animal. And then we, we degrade ourselves by getting down in front of the image, which, by the way, we made. And Paul says, proclaiming themselves to be wise, they became fools. Friends, that's what's going on around us. I want to urge you. The message here is, do not follow the wisdom of this world. Trust me, it's going to change. What is unalterable wisdom today, you'll be told is foolishness tomorrow. It will shift 
and it will change. The word of God will abide forever. Do not embrace what this culture says is wisdom. Embrace the word of God and judge everything going on in the culture by the word of God. Don't go to the word of God and say, well, first off, I know what the culture says is wise, so I'm going to make scripture fit this. That is the modern project of much of evangelical Christianity in America. How can I make the scripture fit what the world is telling me is wise? Completely backwards. What God has said is true, and every man's a liar. That's a Bible verse, by the way. Okay? That's where wisdom is. Secondly, do I see that God is almighty? Because it's wisdom and power together. If you know all things, you're obviously able to be in control of all things. So God is almighty. We confess that in the creed. I believe in God the Father almighty. That means if he's almighty, how much might do you and I have? None. It's all delegated. It's all his. All of his enemies are nothing but puppets on a string. Please hear and understand that. God is almighty. And this is so important as an exile because this world seems invincible. If you and I are honest, is it easy to imagine a time when America is not the world's superpower? It's not. Just like it wasn't, nobody could imagine Rome was going to fall or Greece or the Medo-Persian Empire or Babylon but if you study history, they all come and they all go. This world says it's invincible. So we are told we're giving you wisdom and you, because we have wisdom and we have power, you better get on the right side of history because we're wise and we have power so we know where this is going. To which I say, so do I. It's going like chaff in the wind. That's where it's going. It's going to be blown away. And I know where history is going, and I'm going to be on the right side of history, which is not with Babylon or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or any other kingdom in history. It is in the kingdom of God. Here is where history is going. This is the right side of history. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we read, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. I urge you, get on the right side of history. That's what it is, right there. Everything else is going to fade away. It's going to be seen to be a blip. Exile. Remember this, your king reigns, and his kingdom will never fail, it will never fall, it is growing day by day by day. And when you feel like that is not happening, realize it did not look that way to a young teenager named Daniel standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar, but it was. And the kingdom of God has grown, and it will grow, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, this leads to the final point with which we'll come to the table. As a believer, we have to see that again, see, they said, no, God does not dwell among men. 
Yes, he does. And the God of wisdom and power has become incarnate among us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. It's a whole section. I'll just give you two verses. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, because the Jews, Paul tells us, want power and foolishness to the Gentiles. But those to whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. God's power and God's wisdom have become incarnate in Jesus Christ. And notice, Paul here is talking about the cross. If at any moment Jesus Christ ever appeared foolish and weak to human eyes, it's in that moment. And Paul says, he's ruling, he's reigning. He's displaying the kingdom of God. He's establishing the kingdom of God. God's wisdom and might in the cross. And the world that says that's foolishness and power is a world upside down. That's the first thing. Does this source recognize the cross is power and wisdom? Because if it doesn't, it's foolish and it is Weak, And the more the world mocks and denies it, it only proves their folly and weakness. And please hear me and please be encouraged. There, there are tough things. We just, I was talking with our son John this morning. He had recently been over to a, another country and working with the persecuted church. And the day he got back, there was a major persecution incident. And it's a struggle. And immediately we're like, Hope you made it out and made it back, right? The church is growing in the very places they are trying to crush it. And those kingdoms will fall. But the church of Jesus Christ will grow until the day he returns. Friends, Diocletian promised to crush the church. You don't even know who Diocletian is. He was a Roman emperor, by the way. One of many who promised to crush the church, and he's forgotten, and he is gone, but the gospel is still here. And it was the, the Germanic tribes, and it was the Vikings, and it's been Islam, and now it's secular atheism, and communism, and fill in the blank, and I don't care. They're going to crumble and blow away like chaff. But the kingdom of God is going to endure forever. So Psalm 1 and 2, if you are here this morning, I urge you, I plead with you with everything in me, embrace the Son. Anything else you trust in is chaff. It's dust in the wind. It's going away. But Jesus Christ is wisdom. Jesus Christ is the power of God. Jesus Christ offers to you and I the kingdom of God. Not a kingdom you snatch and take. A kingdom that's given to you freely. Have you embraced Christ? Because every other king will fail. 
If you put your trust in Nebuchadnezzar, he will fail you and probably turn on you and put a death sentence on your head. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he'll take the death sentence that was yours, bear it himself, and give you life. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come down to the Lord's table. And this is the table of wisdom and power. Because Christ displayed this wisdom and power on the cross, and broken body and shed blood seem foolish and weak to this fallen world. But to those who believe, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so as we are ready to come to the table, I'm going to read again Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. This table is open to those who humbly admit that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God, who see the wisdom and the power of God in the cross, who humble themselves and say, I have no hope of salvation apart from that. My best wisdom is foolishness, and I am too weak to even save myself. But thanks be to God, I believe that on the cross, Jesus Christ has saved me. Friend, if you believe that, you are welcome to this table. It is the Lord's table. If you don't believe that, two things. Number one, please let it pass because in taking it, that's what you're professing. And number two, please grab me in the lobby afterwards so we can talk because I want to talk with you about what that means, where true life is found. Friends, brothers and sisters, what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we are coming to your table this morning. We implore you, send your Holy Spirit. Lord, by faith, May we feast upon you, your grace, your wisdom, your power. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Father, you are the God of wisdom and power. You made the earth by your power. You founded the world by your wisdom, and stretched out the heavens by your understanding. 
the universe is governed by your powerful will and sustained by your infinite wisdom moment by moment. In taking this bread, we confess that you are the almighty God, that you are full of wisdom, that we exist by your will and pleasure, and that we owe life and breath and everything else to you. Friends, if this is your confession, take and eat. Jesus, you are the power and wisdom of God incarnate. The world rejected you, crucifying you, thinking and proclaiming it had conquered you. But in the cross, you were not weak or foolish. You were displaying wisdom. You were reigning in power, conquering Satan, sin, and death for us through the cross. In taking this cup, we confess our own sin and folly and our utter inability to save ourselves. And we also profess the sufficiency of your blood to save us now and forever. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and we're going to cry out to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, as he's called in Isaiah 11, to come upon us. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. As you anointed our Lord Jesus during his earthly life, so come upon us now that we might delight in the fear of the Lord. Enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we might know the hope to which we have been called, the riches of God and our glorious inheritance and your incomparably great power for we who believe. Spirit of the living God, give us eyes now to see Jesus raised from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning with all things under his feet. Fill us now with the power of the resurrection so that filled with boldness, humility, and wisdom, we might live as your faithful servants here in the land of our exile. Lord, send us forth to faithfully proclaim your lordship this week, and may your kingdom expand here and throughout the world until the day when Jesus returns. We ask this in his name, and God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, to you whom God has called, Christ is the power of God, and he is the wisdom of God. And in him, 
you are given righteousness and holiness and redemption. Go forth filled with all of his blessings and be a blessing to the land of your exile. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.